0: All right, hey, my name is Jim, one of the pastors here. We've actually been in this sermon series called The Church We Hope For, and we've been examining some of the different cultural values that we hope to mark our church, both now as well as into the future. And uh, what's interesting, it's been about 10 years since we started the first Hope Church in Astoria, and so we're, we're celebrating really 10 years of Hope Churches. Hope Midtown was the third church that was started, and uh, it's just been an extraordinary ride, and um, I'll be talking about that in a little bit. Um, so we're examining these different values. Today is the value of generosity. Now, the way that I'd like to frame this conversation around generosity is I'd like to talk about how this value in many ways um, uh, is a value that touches upon a lot of the existential questions that perhaps you have asked before, whether you're religious or you're not. Uh, and in fact, I'd like to put some of these questions up here. Maybe you've asked some of these questions yourself. And maybe you're here, and again, you don't come from a faith background. Chances are you've probably wrestled with some of these questions before. So for instance, uh, the question of where do we come from? Right? And that's deeper than simply like, I'm from Queens or I'm from Staten Island, right? The question of where our origins, where do we come from? Or wh- how about this question? What's the meaning of life? Um, some of you just came in today and you're like, well, it's a heavy question. Come on, Drew, starting the sermon that way. Yeah, what's the meaning of life? Or is happiness just chemicals circulating through our bodies? Um, I don't know who asked that question, but I found it on the internet, you know? So an existential question that perhaps some of you may be asking. Uh, Are human ethics learned or are they natural? Where do they come from? Is it something that innately, wherever we're born, whether we were born in the 1950s or whether we're born today, are are human ethics, where do they come from? Are they innate or are they learned behaviors or, or beliefs? And where do we go when we die? Questions of kind of eternal significance. See, whether you're someone of faith or you're not, These kinds of questions are existential questions that people just generally wrestle with. Um, What's interesting is there's a book that was written recently um, by Greg Lakinoff as well as uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, who's a professor at NYU. And the book is basically called The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. One of the things that they're examining, especially in today's strident culture that we live in, where people have different beliefs, it's hard to even agree to disagree about things, um, they talk about the generational cultural values that mark how we go about relating to one another in the world. Now, one of the things that they outline about kind of the, the, the newest of cultural value for us in this generation of how um, people are taught to live and what they're supposed to value is number one is that we are to be a people who don't. Uh, experience any pain and we do whatever we can to avoid pain. And so what we do then as a culture is we tell ourselves, I'm entitled to not feeling pain or discomfort at all. And so what happens is a generation is coming that basically believes this, this truth or this value that somehow I am someone who's entitled to not experience any kind of pain at all. Now, as someone who's actually um, the bor- born of immigrant parents who went through a war in Korea and someone who you know, kind of grew up in a city where racism and difficulty and challenge I gotta tell you something. The way that I'm raising my kids is definitely that they won't have any kind of pain, <laughs> right? So like every part of me is just basically like, I don't want you to experience any kind of pain. I don't want you to experience what I've gone through. Uh, but the reality is not only for the next generation and say for my kids, um, but really I think, isn't it true that for many of us, there's this coddling of the American mind, the coddling of culture today where we, we tell ourselves, yeah, whatever doesn't feel good or right I can just press the eject button and therefore I will leave. Uh, I mean, isn't that the way that most people today we think? Another way that I'd like to put the same kind of cultural value of let's not experience any kind of pain is this. Yeah! Be happy! I mean, isn't this another side of the same coin, the side of the coin that basically says what we exist for and the way that we're supposed to live is that we're just a happy people. Like, just pursue your happiness. Whatever makes you happy, pursue that. I mean, isn't that the driving force? Now, whether or not you're religious, because even people of faith, in fact, there's ways in which we have told ourselves, like, the goal of life is simply to be happy. And if you haven't told that to yourself, then Disney has definitely told you that. This is the essence of life. This is the sum of what we're going for, is this pain-free, happiness kind of destination that we're all looking for. Now, as we talk, we're actually, the story that was read earlier by Solomon is a story of someone that I believe actually is marked by many of the values that drive not only the world that we live in, but drive, I would say, our city, Um, So here's a story. It's a story of Luke, uh, of of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Check this out. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. Now these two clues are given about Zacchaeus. Check it out. He was a chief tax collector. Let me pause there. What does that mean and why is that significant? See, the ancient here would have listened to this and immediately leaned in because this note, it's not like, oh, he was an IRS agent and da-da-da-da-da. It, it, was, it was something more significant than that. It was basically, when it says that he's the chief tax collector, see, Judea, where most of the Jews lived, was actually under Roman oppression. So Rome, which was the oppressor, would actually collect exorbitant taxes from the people that they were oppressing, the Jews, because that's what oppressors do. Now, they would hire, they would find men like Zacchaeus, who were Jewish, to stand in place as these tax collectors to, to collect money from his own people. Now what oftentimes these tax collectors, they would actually take more money on the top so that they can, they can pocket that money for themselves and then they'd give to the Roman government. So you could imagine then, right? For these the Jewish people, they look at Zacchaeus and they look with incredible suspicion. They're like, this guy is a traitor. How dare he do this? So you got to understand, like, he's despised. He's looked at as, as someone who's despicable. But, but notice, he's, he's the chief tax collector, but it also tells us he's wealthy. He was wealthy. Why does it say that? It says that because it implies that he's amassed his wealth by being this chief tax collector. He's done it by unscrupulous means. And so as a result, Zacchaeus is someone who, here's the the bottom line of who he is. He is wealthy, and he is despised. Now, look what it says. He wanted to see who Jesus was because the reputation of Jesus had preceded him. Jesus was this miracle worker who healed the sick, opened the eyes of the blind, taught with great authority. Because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. I can imagine, right? Like, there's this big crowd. He's, like, trying to see over the crowd, And people see who he is, and they're like, oh, Zacchaeus. Like, dude, just get out of here, man. Right? Like, and he's just like, what's going on? And they're just like, hey, just, you know. Now, most people would be like, Zacchaeus, come to the front. Come to the front. But most of these people are just like, get out of here, man. Right? Like, they they don't want to let him see Jesus. So what ends up happening? He climbs up a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, here's the twist in the story. He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, hospitality and being in one's home is the most sacred, intimate thing. Uh, in, In many ways, like New York, right? Inviting someone into your home. Most of us are like, we'll meet you at the coffee shop or at the bodega or at the park. But inviting someone into your home, that's like a really sacred thing in New York. Uh, um, I'm not trying to compare New York to ancient, the ancient world, but this value of hospitality, of being in one's home is significant. And so Jesus is basically saying, I actually wanna stay with you. I want to spend time with you. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now, remember what I told you about this guy's reputation though. People saw him as, what, he's this chief tax collector and he's wealthy, Look at what it says, all the people saw this and they began to mutter to one another, really, Jesus, seriously? Sorry, that's my translation. Really? This guy, of all the guys, all the men and women that you can hang out with, it's this guy, this traitor, this guy who's exploited people, really? It says he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, here's the thing about Zacchaeus, though because I actually have enormous amounts of sympathy for him, even up to this point in the story. You know why? Because at the end of the day, I mean, here's the summary of who Zacchaeus is. Zacchaeus is wealthy, and he's despised. In other words, Zacchaeus is a New Yorker. I mean, come on, let's be straight, guys. Let's, let's just level set here. I mean, isn't it true he's wealthy. He's ruthless. He's made, he's amassed his wealth uh, and did it maybe at the expense of others. Yeah, he's despised because he's, it's New York. You know, like, come on. Yeah, of course you're gonna hate on the rich people. Of course you're gonna hate on the people who, who were just playing the game, the capitalist game. Do whatever you can to succeed. Amass as much as you can. Run over anyone that you can as long as you can take care of yourself and your family. I mean, in many ways, I have sympathy for Zacchaeus because he's simply playing the game that so many New Yorkers play as well. The capitalistic, let's just make as much money as we can, live for ourselves, live for my own happiness. doesn't matter what it might cost other people, but for me, this is who I'm going to look out for You see, there's a mantra that I believe that Zacchaeus probably lived by that maybe you have heard before as well. And uh, you might notice this mantra. Here it is. It's called survival of the fittest. I mean, survival of the fittest. Isn't that kind of this philosophy that, yes, it was coined by Charles Darwin and evolutionary theory with microevolution, but the belief that, yeah, natural selection, only the strong survive. I mean, in many ways, that's the mantra of our city, isn't it? Because you can probably finish this line. If you can make it here, you can make it Let's go. Simone was on that. Yes. I mean, isn't it true? If you can make it here in finance, you can make it anywhere. If you can make it here in the arts, you can make it anywhere. If you can make it here in medicine, you can make it anywhere. You can fill in the blank. Isn't it true? Isn't that the story that drives us? And it makes sense, though. Because in many ways, capitalism is built on this. The way that we've been taught about happiness, what we're supposed to pursue, our goals, our ambition, this city of all places really feeds into that ambition. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And Zacchaeus, he's got this reputation of being a sinner, but he's just playing the game. He's basically doing whatever he can to amass as much wealth as he can And yes, it might be at the expense of others, but nonetheless, he's wealthy now. His family is wealthy. He set them up for life. Therefore, it's all good. Now, some of us, I realize, again, we go back to these existential questions. What is the meaning of life? What am I here for? What, like, who do I live for? What do I live for? If many of us were to peel back the layers of what we live for, the stories that we've been told in culture and all around us, and even the stories that have been told in this city, so many of us, I know that I would admit that, yeah, like, basically self-advancement, self-protection, self-promotion, everything is focused on myself. Being happy, amassing as much as I can. And yes, I can sprinkle in some charity here on the side, but when it comes to the essence of what I live for, it really is for myself. And the question that I'd like to posit to you, whether you're religious or you're not, the question I'd like to posit to myself is, is there a better way than this? For someone like Zacchaeus, he's simply living the mantra of the modern man, the mantra of the modern woman, to live for oneself. And isn't that what most of us have been told? And yet, here's what happens. Check out the story. Zacchaeus stood up, so he's at home, and look at what happens. He said, look, Lord, here now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. Now, this is why this is so extraordinary, because Jews believed time and time again that the teachings on generosity, it was usually giving 10 to somewhere between 10 to 33%. That was the belief, like we give that amount, it's a tithe that we give. Now, here's what's so extraordinary, is that his, after this meeting with Jesus, he's basically like, I'm going to give 50% back to the poor. It's extraordinary. Now, notice, some of you might be like, oh, I knew it. I knew what you're doing, Drew. You're basically gonna tell me that it's this doctrine that I'm supposed to give 50% of my No, I'm not not gonna say any of that. Because notice, Jesus never asked Zacchaeus to do this. This is Zacchaeus simply responding to this dinner party. Isn't that extraordinary? He makes this announcement. He basically says, 50%, I'm gonna give half to the poor. Look at what he says. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, which which is what chief tax collectors were known to do, what will he do? I will pay back four times the amount. Now, that's extraordinary. In Numbers chapter 5, it talks about anyone who's been wronged get paid back 20%. And here, Zacchaeus is basically like, if I've wronged anybody, I'm gonna give back 400%. It's huge. Now, look at Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, there's a part of me when I read this uh, passage, and I was kind of reflecting on it, and I was kind of like, Jesus, ah, like, I know you're the Son of God, but I think you're too easily duped. Like, you're telling me after one dinner party, all of a sudden you're gonna be like, salvation has come to this house? Like, what gives you the audacity? I I know swindlers like like Zacchaeus, right? Like, as as a New Yorker, Jesus, let me just give you some advice here, okay? Don't say salvation has come to this. Don't say that so quickly, right? But the question is, why does he say that? How can he be aware? How can he be aware just after one encounter, one dinner party with Zacchaeus? How can he say with such audacity that salvation has come to this house? Why? It's because notice in Zacchaeus' response, it's really a response about money. See, and the reason why Jesus can say with utter conviction about salvation coming to this house that somehow Zacchaeus has really been delivered, it's because at the end of the day, of all the things That Zacchaeus, in that moment, is willing to put down. He's basically saying like, yep, willing to give my money. And money is often the last thing that any of us are willing to give. Yes, we'll give our words, we'll give our time, we'll give our pleasantries, we'll give our positive reviews online, but to give cold, hard cash. And to have faith actually impact us when it actually involves our money. See, that's when things get real. A- in fact, I mean, and I've done this before whenever we we've talked about money at our church, right? There's this phrase, and you've probably heard this phrase, put your money where your... Well, wow, only three people knew that. Uh, I know y'all know what I'm talking about, though, right? Thanks, Gary, for I, I loved you said it the strongest. I really appreciate that. Yeah, put your money where your mouth is. Money is often the, the clearest indicator, then, of where our life is and what we value and what we care about. And, and see, the reason why Jesus can say with utter conviction, today salvation has definitely come to this, is because here's Achaeusis and he's basically like, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm willing to say with utter conviction, this is where my money will go. It's going to change me. Why? Because for Zacchaeus, someone like Zacchaeus, his ambition had given him this sense that money was his everything, of course, because that's what's constantly mentioned. He's wealthy. He's a chief tax collector. Money is his life. And of course, it's when he's willing to actually surrender that. That's when Jesus is like, yep, 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 yep. I see it. I see it now. I see that this person's really serious about what it means to follow, to live for something or someone bigger than myself. And here's what this reveals. It reveals that grace, living a life not just for myself, not for my own family, not for my own self-protection, but living my life for others in in a posture of generosity, where even where it impacts my money. Grace and generosity, that's the better way. Now, if you think about it, in the world that we live in, in the world that we live in, How many of us, what what is the rationale for living with grace and with generosity? In fact, again, as a New Yorker, I will tell myself, there's no way I'm going to live that way. Why? Because people will take advantage of me. People are all in it for themselves as well. I mean, there are so many ways that we can rationalize why grace and generosity, why, why living with grace and generosity, not only with your words and your time, but even with your cold, hard cash, like living with generosity to give it away is a better way? Who in the world is speaking in these tones? Who in the world would ever espouse this? Is it your boss? Is it your coworkers? Is it the city that we live in? No way. And yet, there's something about this encounter that Zacchaeus has that changes everything, where now he goes from living this self centered life. This life that's focused on amassing for himself. (laughs) This life that's essentially survival of the fittest. Only the strong survive. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. He goes from that, from fundamentally changing and now living for something incredibly different. A life of grace and generosity, which is a better way. Now, here's the thing. Here's what's what's so fascinating about this. There's another passage in scripture where Jesus has this encounter with another man. Uh, he's called the rich young ruler. Let's just say he's a young 20-something Manhattanite who works in finance. <laughs> Sorry, no, no, no. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was clever. I just came up with it. I don't know. So, but there's a rich young ruler in basically in the scriptures and Jesus comes to him and this man, he comes with such eagerness and he's basically like, hey, Jesus, like, uh, he doesn't say hey, Jesus, but he says, Jesus, like, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus basically gives him a list of commands and he's like, I've kept all these. And he says, one thing you lack. He says, sell everything. follow me. And what happens? This man says he looks downtrodden, right? And then he he walks away because he knows he's a man of great wealth. Now, here's what's interesting, right? Jesus asks this guy to give 100%. And Jesus, meanwhile, he sees Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is already this unscrupulous rich man And this unscrupulous rich man, Jesus applauds him. He's like, salvation has come to this house. He's given away 50%, you know, four times as much. He's willing to pay back the injustice that he's perpetuated. Which one is it, Jesus? Is it 50%? Is it 10%? Is it 100%? What is it? You see, it's not even about the amount. I mean, don't you see it? It's about the posture of one's heart. It's about the attitude of complete surrender. Now, money is emblematic of the attitude of complete surrender. But do you see what it's about? It's about the attitude of surrendering to God's love and saying, yes, grace and generosity is a better way. It's being free. It's having the faith to live free from the trappings that money gives. The feelings of control, feelings of status, and one of the ways that we actually begin to exercise a life of faith, of salvation, of freedom, is when we can actually give our money away. You know what's interesting is, uh, you know, as I look back on my time in New York, so I moved here in 2001 when I was, uh, at the Indian Chinese dinner that we had on Friday night, I was sitting with, at, at a table with people who were born in the year 2000, which was Unbelievable because I moved here in 2001. And so I moved here in 2001. I was a 21-year-old, and uh, I was working at a church. I was interning at a church, and I raised money to intern at this church because this church was limited in finances, and I was working with kind of the urban poor in the middle of Queens. And so I raised, I had never raised money before, you know, because I had just come out of college. So I raised $7,500 for the year. (laughs) And uh, I lived with this Two other guys at this small little apartment in Flushing, Queens, and I was setting up for moms' groups and scrubbing toilets and being an intern at this. And uh, you know what was interesting is I look back on that like that 21 year old self like who moved out to New York and I'm like that was so foolish, <laughs> right? And I'm just kind of like I'm looking back and I'm like you lived off a 7,500. By the way, the way I got around it was like um, after like the church events and stuff, I would collect all the leftovers. And I would eat those leftovers for a long time. Just a little life hack. Anyone who comes to any of our events, just a little life hack for you. Uh, maybe you were in the same season that I was. But, like, I, I look back at myself during that time. And I'm kind of like, wow. I, like, I look back at that 21-year-old version of myself. And I'm like, man, I've changed so much, hopefully for the better. But one thing I realized about that 21-year-old self was, like, I was just so full of faith. I mean, it was just kind of like, you know, money, like, I believe that God's gonna provide that he's got me. What's interesting is that, so 10 years later, so 2001 to 2011, uh, I met my wife, we got married, I started working as a pastor. We ended up owning an apartment uh, on Roosevelt Island and now all of a sudden, right, like I've, coming from someone who was raising support and living here for the first year to like all of a sudden, like, like an apartment in New York? Right, like there's this feeling of like, I've made it, right? Like, and so 10 years later, my wife and I, I just, I, I realized I had way more money, way more assets, I was married now, we were double income, no kids, like we're amassing wealth at this point. And the story of the starting of hope 10 years ago was really the story of the things that were keeping me at the church. One was prestige because the church was becoming this well-known church in Queens. And and the second thing was money because every time I thought about leaving the church, I thought, like, what if I lose my job? Like, if I lose my job, I'm not sure how we're going to make ends meet because now we've got money, right? Like, we've, and I can't, I can't, like, Disrupt this earning potential here. And uh, how many of you know, and I've asked this question before, Like, you, you know that like, money and prestige are bad reasons to be a pastor. Anyone ever, anyone ever told you that? Just want you, to, just want you to clue you in on something about this vocation. And so I left. And I remember I left, and it was difficult because here I was unemployed. I felt like I had built on my resume for 10 years, but now all of a sudden I felt like I had nothing again. And I'm kind of like, wow, I'm unemployed Um, yes, we have more assets, but in a weird way, what was so interesting about 10 years ago as I was reflecting on this sermon was like 10 years ago, it was an invitation for me again to live by faith, to believe that God truly is who he says he is, that money isn't everything, And what's interesting is, like, for 10 years, though, I, like, had been amassing more, and I I realized, like, that same temptation, that same persuasion that somehow money, I'll never have enough, I'm not secure, there's no way I'd go back to living as a 21-year-old, like, I realized there's a part of me that the older I get and the more money I amass and the more money that my wife and I amass and accumulate, the more assets that we possess, whatever it might be, the more what, what ends up happening, it's kind of just the human dilemma. Is like I just end up trusting myself more. I trust what I have more. I trust my gifts more. And now, whereas when I was 21, I was living by faith. And then when I was 31, I was living by faith. Now that I'm 40-something, right? Like, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm done living with, by faith. I'm living by logic now, right? I'm living by, like, forget, forget trying to make steps of faith with what God's given. Instead, I'd rather trust myself. And I'd rather protect my kids And rather, I want them to be really happy. Oh, do you see how the tentacles of the ways and the stories of the world continue to seep in to not only my heart, but all of our hearts? And yet here, the story of Zacchaeus is is showing us that the story of Zacchaeus and Jesus is that grace is a better way, that generosity is a better way, that living living for your own story it's too small a thing. Living for your own wealth, living for your own money, living for your own 401k, it's too small a thing. I mean, isn't it true? Like, what if the story was true, that the God of the universe really came, sent his son Jesus to live and die on a cross, resurrected from the grave, beat death itself, and this same God is a God who says, I am with you, I'll never forsake you. You can actually walk in faith and in fervor and trusting that you can give up something as small as money to follow me. I mean, what if that was true? And yet here's the reality of what Christians believe. We really believe that that's true, that the God of the universe invites us into this extraordinary existence in life. we something so small as money, as something that we actually can be free from and start living with passion and faith. But man, the tentacles of my own gifts my own wisdom, my own assets, my own capacity, all those things come wrapping themselves around me, trying to pull me back in. And today, 20 years later, I confess, before God, I'm just like, God, I want more. I wanna live with faith again. I wanna live with such extraordinary faith to see that you are, real and true, and that you do what you say you can do, that I can bring my nothing, and you can do extraordinary things. I mean, isn't that the kind of life, whether you're a Christian or you're not, that all of us want to live, the kind of life that has gone all in with believing that God can do something extraordinary? The question for me and you is, will we put ourselves into a position where we say, God, you do something extraordinary. I trust that when I give of myself, you do something extraordinary. Now, here's the thing. Some of you are like, okay, Drew, that's great. It's fun hearing these stories and stuff. But at the end of the day, I didn't really come to a sermon basically telling me that this is what I have to do. But like I mentioned, did you notice Jesus, he, he doesn't tell Zacchaeus this is what you have to do. He never gives him that command. Something just happens to Zacchaeus. The question is, what happened? It wasn't wasn't like Zacchaeus, he listened to a sermon, and all of a sudden, like, oh, my goodness, that sermon was amazing. Guys, everyone, 50%, I'm willing to give to the... If that happens to you, by the way, that'd be awesome. And uh, just let us know afterwards. It'd be very encouraging (laughs) to see that a sermon had that impact, right? It's not like a small group meeting where it's just like, oh, wow, this market changed my life, and da-da-da. It's like... It's not like he learned a doctrine, like, oh, you know, he was reciting the Westminster Catechism, which I know came years later, but like somehow recited the Westminster Catechism. Oh, yes, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And like all of a sudden, like amazingly generous. That's not what happens. What happened to Zacchaeus? It was an encounter. It was an encounter with a person. Like he finally, face to face, in the flesh, he met. Jesus, and it was this encounter with Jesus that changes everything. And maybe one of the reasons why some of us have never experienced the fullness of faith, the fullness of radical generosity, the fullness of not living just for yourself is because we haven't fully had the encounter. What kind of encounter is this? Like I mentioned, he's this short man who's in a tree He's despised by others. And you know what's so interesting? It's that Jesus, he goes out of his way. Basically, Jesus is walking along, and he points to me. He basically says, Zacchaeus, get down from there. I'm going to be at your house today. And it's the most surprising, subversive moment. Like, what in the world is going on? Like, why did you choose this guy of all the people to choose? Why him? And yet, this is who Jesus is, right? He, he goes to the unexpected people, and what happens is he has this encounter with them, and the encounter changes everything. I, it's the encounter where Jesus is basically, he, like, he's choosing Zacchaeus and saying, like, I see in you something extraordinary that I can do. It's kind of like, I, I was thinking about this example, and I was thinking about, like, um, when I was in middle school, there was this high schooler who I really looked up to, his name was Edwin, and he played, he was really good at basketball. The kind of guy that when we're playing pickup, like this guy is dominating, and Edwin was basically the person who would constantly be winning, and if you're going and waiting for pickup games, you know, wanna be on Edwin's team because he's gonna stay on the court. And so Edwin, who was in high school, I remember one time, like, we were all together, and, you know, of course, they're picking teams, and as this middle schooler, I always wanted to get on the court, but I was too small and short and slow and not very good. Um, That was way too descriptive there. But uh, so anyhow, so I'm this little middle schooler kind of, like, waiting to get on the court and stuff, and, 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 uh, you know, one time Edwin was basically like, I got Drew, right? And I was just like, I was like, Me? Yeah, yeah, come on, come to my team. I was like, (laughs) right? Like, it's just like, yeah, let's go. (laughs) Who's got next? Who wants some of us, right? Like, it's just like, there was something, there was something about being chosen, and there was like this waft of confidence that just overcame me, right? Like this moment of like, yeah, yeah. Isn't it interesting what happens when that feeling of security, of feeling chosen, feeling loved comes into play? Like, whenever, like when Tina and I, when things are going well between us, right? Like if, if we're in the middle of a fight and stuff, and like my kids are just basically, hey, can we have dessert? It's like, no, no, you're not having dessert. I grew up not having dessert every night, okay? You're not having dessert, <laughs> right? But when things are going great between Tina and I, Right? My kids are like, oh, can, can we have dessert? It's like, yeah, do you want ice cream cookies? Do you want ice cream and cookies? Do you want it all? Like, you take whatever you want. You guys, you're the most beautiful kids ever. <laughs> right? Like, what happens when, whenever we're in a place of security and freedom and love? What happens? It just spills out. It just, there's this generosity that's overflowing because we've had this encounter. See, it's not just that grace and generosity is a better way. It's that Jesus is the better way. Uh, Tim Keller says, Jesus goes up on a tree to die on a cross so that Zacchaeus can come down from the tree. It's when we've encountered this kind of grace, this kind of love, it changes everything. It takes even the human proclivities towards self-preservation, self-fill-in-the-blank, and it transforms us into people who become generous, loving, kind, warm, caring for other people kind of people. Can you imagine how our city would be different if just... All of us in this room somehow just got a waft <laughs> of that kind of security, that kind of love, that kind of generosity that filled our spirits, it changed everything the way that we use our money, the way that we use our time and energy. Can you imagine how it would change the classrooms, your workplaces, the city around us? And why not us? Why not us? who really dare to believe that God is who he says it? that Jesus really came, resurrected from the grave, and we have been captured by this incredible magnanimous love. It changes everything. Why not us? Why not you? Why not me? Why not all of us who are now finally willing to step into a destiny of faithfulness, of joy, of generosity that only he can give I'm gonna invite you to stand with me and I'm gonna invite the worship team to come forward. I want to talk to two different people here. First, uh I want to speak to, first, those of you who, in this room, like, you're like, ah, that feels so amazing to be, like, that secure and, like, feel that loved and cherished and chosen, but honestly, right now, I am just in a free fall, and I don't feel secure at all. In fact, I feel um, really dislocated, and it's been a really tough season, and I don't feel that God is for me and that his love is for me. With whatever it might be, there's health issues, there's, and I realize All of us go through those different seasons where God feels incredibly absent and silent. And for those of you first, here's what I want to invite you to do. I want want to invite you to to yearn and to thirst for encounter again, to, to believe that the God of the universe, that he really does love you. He's for you, that he picks you out in the crowd and he basically says, hey, you, you. You. Let me see. Let's have a meal together. Let's be together. Choose you, you know. So that's the first. And the second group I want to talk to is the group, maybe, yeah, there's a part of you that you have been coasting by a little bit when it comes to this faith thing. And maybe today, like, you're like, wait a minute, does does my life reflect the kind of transformed life that has somehow been so zapped by this encounter that, like, everything's changed, including my money, my pocketbook. Am I the kind of person who lives with this incredible kind of faith, kind of faith that's reflected in everything? And for you, maybe God today is speaking to you to surrender to his love and to start living into this incredible destiny that God might have for you. And so, um, would you join me in prayer? And uh, the prayer team is going to be here, and we're going to have time. If you want to come forward for prayer, you can come forward either right now or after the service. But we're just going to spend some time singing this song together as a confession, as a way of surrender, of saying, yes, God, I surrender to your love. I surrender to a life of faith. I want to follow you.